Well, church, I hope that you've already had a wonderful, wonderful morning with Connect Group and with these baptisms. It's awesome to gather together and to see this new life that we have in Christ uh, just being lived out in these new believers. And so we have much to celebrate today. Today is one of those chapters in the Bible is we're going to get into 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember, we were there last week and I mistakenly thought I could actually get through uh, that chapter in one week. And there's just so much there. I went ahead and, and stopped a little bit early on it last week because I didn't want to fail to give proper attention to what we're going to talk about today. And as time was running out, I wanted to be sure that, that we got this. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of those topics in some ways that you'd rather not deal with. It's one of those topics that many, as we talk about it today, it seems negative, it seems unpleasant. But the Bible doesn't drop the topic. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about what we're going to deal with today. And even though it is a difficult text, even though it causes us so many questions, it's one of these texts that we must deal with because the Bible clearly deals with it. In chapter 12 of the book of 2 Samuel, we've been following David's life now throughout this book. And a couple of weeks ago, we really dug in on the fact that it was so difficult for us to understand how David's life could unravel so quickly. Here is a godly man. Here is a man who God himself says is a man after his own heart. In so many ways, David looked like he was growing and thriving and strong in his faith. And yet now we see, as we get to these later chapters, that in fact, David had this sin, this hidden sin that it didn't just pop up one day. It wasn't just all of a sudden, but there were choices that he made all the way back in the beginning of this book. We talked about the fact of places where God said of kings, do not gather for yourselves certain things. He said, talked about horses and chariots. But secondly, he said, don't gather to yourselves wives and concubines. And it said, don't gather to yourself riches. But yet David chose to do the first one and third one, but he completely ignored God on the second one. And as David's hidden lust began to take hold of his life, I want you to remember it didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't happen in a moment. It didn't happen in a day. But David slowly, slowly let his heart begin to be rotted by this lust. And when given an opportunity one day, he chose to sin in a great way. And if you remember, the story of chapter 11 was David and Bathsheba. This is where he was simply out on his, uh, the roof of his, his palace, and he looks and, and he sees a woman who is out there bathing, okay? Now, it's one thing. We talked about the fact that the king just simply went outside. He can't help somebody standing there naked bathing, but the reality is he could help whether or not he stood there and watched, whether he stood there and dwelt upon it, and as he stood there and dwelt upon it, this sin, this lust that was within him began to again take hold. And he had the audacity to say to one of his servants, who is that? And he says, listen, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of so-and-so, the husband of so-and-so. So he knew he was, that she was married. He knew that this was somebody's daughter. We're going to find out today that one of his most trusted advisors, it was actually his granddaughter. But he was so overcome with that lust that he had let grow in his life. He had her brought to the palace and he ended up getting her pregnant. And as if that wasn't bad enough, in order to cover up the sin of her pregnancy, he tried to get her husband to come home. 
took him off the battlefield, tried to get him drunk, tried to get him to the place where he might would go home and sleep with his wife thinking that maybe this will be the outcome where he'll think that's my child and have no idea that his wife's been unfaithful with the king. But this man was honorable, Uriah was his name, and he was a man, a God-fearing man, and literally he would not go home. He had enough honor to say to the king, listen, what right do I have to go home? All the other men are fighting. All the other men are out there dying. All the other men are out there doing what they should be doing. I'm not going to dishonor my family or you or God or anybody else by doing what you're asking me to do. And literally slept at the gate of the palace while he was home those two days. When David realized that he had no way to cover up his sin through the husband, he did something that was absolutely atrocious. He took this loyal man and he had the general of his army put him out on the front line so that he would die. And then when word came that he died, he took Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, folks, that sounds more like Jerry Springer show, doesn't it? Than it does a man after God's own heart. I mean, I think even that would make Jerry Springer blush a little bit of what has happened and what is going to happen in this family. When we got to chapter 12 last week, remember, that was when the prophet came out and God sent Nathan to David and he told David a story about a rich man and a poor man. He said the poor man had one lamb and he loved that lamb. If you remember the way the story went, and said it was like a child to him. And the rich man had many lambs. And suddenly a man shows up at the rich man's house and he needed to feed this man. And rather than going and getting one of the many lambs that he had, he went next door, sent his servants to go and take that one lamb from that poor man and he had it slaughtered. Remember, David was outraged. And by David's own confession, he said, listen, the man who did that, he should pay back fourfold what he had taken from that man and he should die. And in all of his moral outrage, the prophet looks at him and he says, well, king, guess what? You're that man. Just substitute the wife in the story and you're that man. You can imagine David was dumbfounded. I'm sure he thought he'd gotten away with it. I'm sure he thought he had hidden it. He was trying, I'm sure, to live with the guilt and the shame of the sin that he had committed. But God is true to his word. And he said, you know what? Your sins, be sure they will find you out. And in fact, his sins had found him out. And God says to David something that's hard for us today to accept. He said, David, there's going to be some serious consequences for the sin that you've committed. One of the reasons it's so hard for us to accept what God was saying was because sometimes in the midst of our sinfulness, innocent people get hurt, don't they? And we want so desperately to somehow blame God for these things that are going to happen in David's life. There's a, a part of us that want to rage at God and say, why would these consequences affect his child, his three grown sons? Why do these things have to affect all these other people? Well, from the beginning, that is exactly what God said sin does. It steals, it kills, it destroys not just the sinner, but everyone that is around the sinner. And all that you're about to read that's about to happen isn't because God is unloving, because God is unkind, because God has no mercy or grace. In fact, the absolute opposite of that is true. He is and has all of those things. And the reason David and his family and his friends and his leaders that are around him, the reason they're going to suffer is not because God is not good. It's 
because David is not good. And we don't have the luxury to hand off the consequences of our sin onto God and make him bad. It's a hard lesson. It's a difficult story to look at today because it's almost overwhelming what we have to consider. But I want you to think with me this morning. When's the last time you really thought about the seriousness of sin? Because most of us, we don't stop long enough to consider the, the, the things that the choices we make, what they're going to bring into our lives. The unevaluated life is what kills most of us. When's the last time you stopped and thought about what the fallout would be because of the sin that you're about to step into? Have you stopped to ever consider what might happen and what lives might be ruined if you take that fatal step? And the reason I say a fatal step is because sin leads where? To death. I mean, you don't have to like it, but you better accept it because God told us from the very beginning, the day you'd eat of that tree, right? You will surely die. The New Testament scripture, nothing has changed. The wage of sin is death. Sin is crouching at the door, right? The devil's right there crouching at the door. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. That is all that sin can and will ever bring into our lives. And have you stopped to consider the ramifications of the choices that all of us make when we take that fatal step away from the Lord and into sin? You better ask that question because you need to ask the question that comes after that. Am I willing to pay that high of a price? You never know who might be destroyed because of an indiscretion that has happened in your life. As we read chapter 12, I want to start with this simple thought that sin always leads to negative consequences. Number one, sin always leads to negative consequences. We're going to pick up in chapter 12 and verse 10 again this morning that we read some of that last week. I want to pick it up because... Nathan has just confronted him, and David has just said, you know, he has to pay back fourfold for this thing that he did, and he had no compassion, it said, and David says, you know, I mean, the, the prophet says, you're that man, and David is just, you know, crushed. He's just condemned himself with his own words. And he goes on in verse 10, and this is what the prophet said to David. He says, now therefore, therefore, looking back on all these things that you've done, and he gets to the why, uh, how could you have done this to the Lord? The Lord's been faithful. You've been unfaithful. He says, because of this, the Lord shall, or I'm sorry, because of this, the sword shall never depart from your house. That means for the rest of his life, there's going to be constant friction and battle and dissension and disloyalty, infighting, jealousy, strife. Literally, death is going to come to his house at the hands of his own family against family. David's going to be in a constant battle for the rest of his life. He said, the sword shall never depart from your house. Why? Because you have despised me. And you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. That's an understatement. 
Because the companion is going to be his son. Remember, he has all the wives, all the concubines. His son Absalom is going to try to take the throne and he's going to disgrace his father by taking these wives and these concubines, some of the, these stepmothers, the, the mothers to some of his brothers and sisters, and he's going to sleep with them on the roof of the palace in the open, in broad daylight. Let that sink in a second. How devastating this is going to be to David. He said, I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did this in secret, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, underline this, the Lord has also taken away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child that is born to you shall surely die. Are you feeling the weight of sin yet? Put yourself in this man's position. It says that Nathan just got up and he left the house. says, then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that the child was very sick. David therefore inquired of the Lord for the child, or inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. And he was unwilling and he would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he would not listen to our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? They were so concerned for David, they thought he would take his own life. He was so distraught. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. How many of you expected that? He came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept. But when the child has died, you arose and you ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Will I... I will go to him, but he will not come back to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went in and he laid with her, and she gave birth to another son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him the child Jedidiah, which means the Lord loves him. 
He named them that for the Lord's sake. Sin leads to negative consequences. I think Robert Stevenson said it best when he said that everybody, sooner or later, sits down to a banquet of consequences. Let that sink in too. That sooner or later, it may not be immediate. This is a year into David's sin that he's hidden for all this time that he thought he'd probably gotten away with, and God has exposed him. And now he's feeling the weight of that sin. Everybody, sooner or later, sits down to a banquet of consequences. And I want you to understand that as believers in Jesus Christ, the reason this is so hard, because we want to go back and we want to get to verse 13, because David said in verse 13, listen, I've sinned against the Lord. We go to Psalm 51 and we hear David's words against you and you alone have I sinned. He, he rejoices in the fact that he says that God has broken his bones so that he might again be healed. And, and, and David seems to be sitting before God humble, contrite. Sorry for his sin. He's begging God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And folks, I want you to see that as believers in Jesus Christ, this is true what I'm going to tell you right now, that because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Christ, He died on Calvary for one reason, so that our sins might be taken away from us. And our sins were placed on Him. Jesus died on Calvary's cross, innocent. He was the one we read about earlier that God sent the one of whom He had no sin, but He became sin for us. He took our place. He died our death on the cross of Calvary so that God could forgive us of our sin. Our God is too righteous. He's too holy. He is too just to just look at us and say, you know what? I said the wage of sin is death, but I didn't mean it. He's not going to get guilty and all of a sudden say, well, you know what, that's not the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. All of us deserve death and hell according to the Scriptures because of our sin. But God in His grace and mercy towards us sent His Son to die for those who were enemies. And we stand before God, the Bible says, justified. In verse 13, that's the only way you can describe what happened to David. God covered his sin. God took away his sin, looking forward to the cross. Everybody in the Old Testament, by faith, looking forward to a Messiah that would one day bring forgiveness to his people. And David was forgiven. And God even said to David, and you will not die. In that moment, David is what we call justified. Justified is simply, it simply means to be declared innocent. And the reason God could declare him innocent was because the price of sin had been paid. The debt for all his sin, his, the death that he deserved was placed onto Christ. And now the judge can look at the one who is guilty by all accounts and say, the debt's been paid, you are free, you are forgiven because of what Christ has done. And God restored, back to David in that moment, a relationship with him. 
I mean, that's what we need more than anything with forgiveness between two people. Isn't that what we're desiring? Isn't that what we want more than anything? Is I want to be forgiven and I want a relationship to be restored. All that was lost, I want to have that back. That's what David meant when he cried out. I want the joy of my salvation back. I want a relationship with you, God. And the only way we can have it is with Christ when he justifies us and he forgives us and he makes right the relationship that was destroyed by our sin. And right there, we would want to say, well, then if he's forgiven, doesn't that mean that all the consequence is going to go away? In that moment, God forgave him. Listen, when God brings consequence into a believer's life, he is not doing it in order to punish you. Because on the cross, that punishment was already paid. So why? Why? very simple. A good father loves his children enough to discipline them so they don't keep sinning. Because that sin will continue to lead where? To death and to destruction. And a good father loves his children enough to do whatever it takes to make sure that yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you're free. But there is a consequence so you know the weight of sin, so you understand what sin costs, so that hopefully you begin to love God with all your heart and hate your sin the way that God wants you to hate your sin. Most of us, that would never happen if it weren't for the consequences that we face in the weight of that sin. You see, in grace, God forgives all of our sin, but He doesn't remove the consequences of it. That leads us to the second thing. It's impossible to, vo- to avoid the law of reaping and sowing. You need to write this down. Laws are important. Have you ever wondered, like, I mean, I, I watch movies like Apollo 13, or I think about things like the, the Mars rover, and with 9-11 yesterday, you think about design, like how do they take a building and, and, and build skyscrapers like that? I mean, it's just absolutely incredible the things that man has been able to do. And have you ever wondered why man can do that? Like, how do people know that you can send a shuttle or you can spend a, or send the, you know, this, this, these rockets into the air and, and they come apart and then they start being taken by gravity and then they have thrusters that'll kind of push them a direction. And when I mean, you think about Apollo 13 and some of these missions that they did, it's crazy. They actually knew how gravity would affect these vehicles and they would sling them out there into space and then they'd get close enough to the moon, the moon would start to pull them back in and they would slingshot around the moon and it would force them back towards earth and then they could get the things to land in the exact place where they want them. I mean, it's just incredible. You say, how is that even possible? It's because in this life and in this world, we have laws and they don't change. You can count on them. In science, you learn about all the the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, all these things, all these laws that are in place that allows man to calculate because he can count on the fact that this is true and this will happen every single time. Hold that thought. Because there is a law that we need to understand even as believers in Jesus Christ. It is the law of sowing and reaping. Because it's a guarantee. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, let's read that together. I want you to see it with your own eyes. And I hope that you'll memorize it. I hope it's one of those things that you will hold on to because he says in these verses something very important. I mean, when Paul leads out with this, he's trying to get your attention. He's saying, do not be deceived. That's how he starts it. 
Don't let anybody lie to you, especially yourself, because you're the best liar to you. And he says, do not be deceived. And then he follows that up with, God will not be mocked. Do not be deceived. Don't mock God with the lies that you tell yourself or that others try to tell you that it doesn't matter how you live. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die, right? And there's no consequence. And this life is all, whatever it is that the world tries to lie to us about in regards to sin, even, I mean, think about in biblical times, it's the whole reason Paul had to say in Romans chapter 1, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning? Do we just sin and sin and sin and take advantage of God's grace, believing that he's just going to forgive us? And Paul says what? Absolutely not. By no means. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. And then look at what he continues to say. He says, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So, if you put an apple seed in the ground, what do you expect? Apples. And so when you put apple seeds in the ground, you can't turn around and get, get uh, mad at God and say, well, God, I wanted lemons. But that's what we do. We, we want to sow sin into our life. We want to sow the flesh into our life. And then we can't figure out why things aren't coming up different than we imagined. Uh, God, I want to sow strife in my marriage, but I want, I, but I want to reap joy. You see how crazy that is? And he says, don't, don't be fooled. What a man sows, what he puts in the ground, that seed that he plants, it will grow to be exactly what he planted. And he goes on and he says, for the one who sows in the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's what David is feeling right now. His life, it feels like his corrupted and dying even though god says you're not going to die physically he's restored restored his life spiritually he's restored his life but listen those decisions are reaping corruption and he says the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life folks it's always been the same thing go to deuteronomy he says the same exact thing he says choose today life or death isn't that what it says you can, you can reap corruption or you can reap life. But you've got to choose and God will hold you to the choices that you make. I want you to write down these three simple statements so you don't get them confused. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. The reason so many struggle with this law of sowing and reaping is we want to believe we can sow, you know, apples and, and reap oranges. It, it, that's not how it works. The reality is that God, if we have any life, if we have any goodness, there are times sometimes where God may choose to lessen the consequence in our life when it could be much, much worse. But folks, if he does that, you understand that it's grace, right? That he freely offers to us grace. How many of us did he have to save? None. 
Anybody out there want to say you earned it? Anybody brave enough to tell God, God, give me what I deserve? No, the wage of sin is death. And if he gave us what we deserve, that's what we deserve. In fact, a wage is what you earn. That's what we earned. And God comes along and he gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us mercy and doesn't give us what we do deserve. And he pours into our life this grace. And we want to say, well, you know what? Great. Grace is free. It's free to you. It wasn't free to Jesus. One of the things that helps me the most in my life when I'm trying to navigate morally the things and the choices and the decisions that I make is I try to remember, even though Christ died once for all, I try to think of it in terms that, you know what? What kind of friend would I be to anybody? If you said to me, you know what? I will die for you or I'll go to prison for you. You committed a sin, you, you did this action, and you know what? Somebody has to pay the price. I love you enough that I'm going to go do your 20-year sentence. And then at the end of that 20 years, they get out. What if my first instinct was, hey, you know what? That didn't cost me anything last time I did it. And I can do it again, and guess what? I bet he'll go again. Could you imagine a relationship like that? Could you honestly look a person in the eye and say, I'm, I'm thankful, and I love you? And I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. Folks, the grace that God has given to us, it's free, but it is not cheap. It costs the Son of God his life. The second thing I want you to write down is... Sin is cheap, but it's not free. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Well, sin is cheap, but it's not free. You know there's a cost that comes with sin, right? You know that sin is extremely costly. For David, that one moment of pleasure cost Uriah his life. It will cost him one of his most trusted advisors and supporters and loyal friends. It will cost him the life of four of his sons. See, the devil wants to tell us sin doesn't cost. I mean, Adam and Eve, right? God said the day you eat of the tree, you'll die. And the devil's over there going, nah. No, sin's cheap. <laughs> Lastly, I want you to see that you're free to sow, <laughs> but not to reap. You have the choice of what you sow. But whatever you sow, that's, that's it. You reap whatever you sowed. You can't change it. You don't get to decide differently. Once you sow it, then you'll reap it. And listen, there's no better place in Scripture than what we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 12 to demonstrate this because David sowed death, didn't he? Isn't that what he put in the ground? 
the death of a marriage, the death of a husband. I mean, literally. He had Uriah killed. He sowed death. Guess what he reaped? You reap what you what? So, so he sowed death, he reaped death. Those children, his heart, his life, right? I mean, your, your kids. You say that's devastating. Well, wasn't Uriah somebody's kid? Wasn't Uriah somebody's father? He didn't take any of that into account when he did it. David sowed betrayal. And if you sow betrayal, what do you reap? Betrayal. If you are disloyal, you will breed disloyalty. I want you to see in this story what is so crazy is that here is this wonderful man, Uriah, who is completely faithful to the king. He's fighting on behalf of his country. He's fighting on behalf of his king. He's fighting on behalf of the Lord. He has more integrity in those moments that we see him in Scripture than David does at that moment. The man after God's own heart. And he betrayed Uriah. He betrayed the kingdom. He betrayed the Lord. He betrayed over and over. And I want you to know that he sowed betrayal and he will reap betrayal. There's a gentleman named Ahithophel that you're going to meet him in a couple chapters. He was the trusted advisor that I told you about. He was the man that David went to. He loved this man. This man loved David. And what we find is that eventually Ahithophel, when he has the chance to side between King David and this son Absalom, who's trying to usurp the throne, he actually betrays David. And you think to yourself, why would a man suddenly do that? You know why? Because Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. How do you think he felt when he realized that the king took his daughter, impregnated her, and had her husband killed? You see, you can get mad and say, well, why would God do that? Listen, it's not why would God do that. Why did David do that? These are the natural consequences of the choices that David made. David set those things in motion. He reaped simply... Whatever it was that he sowed. David sowed sexual sin, didn't he? He reaped it too. And listen, the Bible says you reap the wind, or I'm sorry, you sow the wind, you reap the what? The whirlwind. That sometimes the choices we make, the outcome afterwards of those things that we reap, it's like a tornado, just completely destructive. Listen, out of his family, because of, and listen, they've watched the lust of David, they've watched the multiple wives, they've seen now the adultery, they've seen the murder. What do you think that does in the hearts and lives of his own children? His oldest son Ammon, who was old, uh, oldest and, and lived long enough to see all this in David's life, he becomes the type of man that ends up raping his stepsister. Or his half-sister. Yeah, his half-sister. 
And so you've got Absalom from one wife. You've got Ammon from another wife. Those are two oldest sons of David. He rapes her. Absalom ends up killing him. Everybody's sitting back, and can you imagine what the kids must be thinking? Where's David? Where's David in all of this? Why isn't David standing up and stopping this? Probably because David felt like, what can I say? Do you see that's what sin does to you? It leaves you powerless even to lead your own children when you live outwardly like that. Because in his mind, he probably thought, what can I say? And his kids are looking at him like, where's the giant slayer? Where's the man that has saved Israel? Won't he come and save his own family? And he sits there with his mouth shut and says nothing as his family disintegrates and sexual sin just explodes in the life of his kids. He sowed sexual sin and he reaped sexual sin. On the surface, you may think that it looks like you get away with sin. And you may want to shake your fist at God and say, you know what, it seems like righteous deeds, they go unrewarded. I want you to remember for the rest of your life what we read in Galatians chapter 6. If you've never seen it, if you don't have it memorized, you memorize it because when you want to think that way, that I can get away with it, or you think that, you know what, God doesn't even take care of the righteous. God doesn't even reward. Listen, when you think that way, remember what he said, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. If you sow righteousness, you'll reap eternal life. If you sow sin in the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And folks, God will make it right in the end. Thirdly, consequences can draw us back to God's grace. That's the beauty of consequences. Because right now you're thinking there's nothing beautiful about this story. Well, folks, let me tell you something. C.S. Lewis coined a term when thinking about verses like this that I think is pretty appropriate in this moment. He termed it severe mercy. Those two words seem oxymoronic, really. They just It's like jumbo shrimp, right? They just don't go together. Something's not right. Severe mercy. Until you see how he described it, he said the principle of sowing and reaping shows us and teaches us how we can fear the Lord, hate and avoid the sin which seeks to destroy us. Remember we said that this goes back to discipline. This isn't God's punishment on David. He's not trying to destroy David. He is trying to restore David. You see, David began to understand that. See him beside his child, begging, pleading, crying, refusing to eat. He's fasting. He's he's asking God, save this child. And God chooses not to. Folks, it wasn't lost on David that he didn't think God hated him. God was trying to destroy him. He didn't think that, you know, God is unjust and God isn't worthy of my worship anymore. How could he do this to me? The reality is that's the question God should be asking, not us to God. And literally, it blows my mind. When I read it again, I was just like, that is crazy. That David in that moment when God doesn't answer his prayer the way that he wants and he makes him feel the full weight of the consequence, even though he's begged God not to let him feel it, it says that David gets up 
and he washes himself and he puts on clean clothes and he goes to the house of the Lord and he worships. That is amazing. That might be one of the greatest miracles that is in the entire Bible. How does a man so trust God, so love God, that he could go from that moment to that moment? It's because he believed and he knew, and I believe he trusted the Lord. You see it all through the Psalms. That he knew that God's ways were good. And that God could be trusted and God is in control and God, his ways are best and his ways aren't our ways and we don't have to understand it. What he asks of us is to trust it. And David exemplified that. God wasn't destroying David. He was restoring him and he wanted him to hate the sin and to avoid it in the future because he knew that if he continued down that path, of lust that it would continue to destroy and destroy and destroy his family. You see, if we will submit to God's discipline as David did, here's the cool thing about God, is he can bring beauty out of ashes, can he? See, it looked like David's life was just burning down. And the truth was, God was building in the midst of all that burning, and he made something beautiful out of the ashes the way the New Testament authors would put it, Paul would say that basically there's no waste in your life. You see, you feel like that's all waste. Like, what could God do with that? That's all waste. That's all pain. That's all suffering. Listen, we have a God that somehow works through pain and suffering. It's crazy. It's how he grows us. It's how he molds us. It's how he shapes us. It's how he protects us. It's no different than the child who wants to touch the stove, right? That you're going to inflict pain on that child. Why? You're going to swat their hand. Why would you do that? In that moment, are you saying, I hate you? In that moment, are you saying, I don't love you? In that moment, are you saying, well, you know what? I just don't just do what you want to do. No, you're inflicting pain. Why? Because you know there is a greater pain that lies ahead if they continue on the path. And see, God moves like that. And in Romans, he says he works all things out for good. Not some things, not a few things. Literally, all things in your life, no matter how they look to you, he's working all of them out for your good if you love him and you are called according to his purposes. Let that sink in a second. God did not abandon David. He was helping him through the process of confession and repentance and restoration. It was God who would keep David through all of these dreadful consequences. I mean, think about what he went through and then he went and worshiped. Think about what he's going to go through in the coming chapters that we've already talked about and I've given you a little hint of what's coming in his life. Think about that. God is going to be there to carry him even through those consequences and he's going to keep leading him toward life. If there's one thing we all agree with and we know in this room is you can't undo your past. Don't you wish you could? My goodness, don't you wish you could go back in time? All of us have moments like this in our life where we're like, man, if I could go back and change that. Folks, I'm sorry, you cannot change your past. But Christ can cover it. 
And he can forgive you. And he can declare you not guilty because of what Christ did for you on the cross. And he can restore your relationship to him that's been broken. And you may have to hold the consequences, but you can't change it. But let me tell you what can be changed. Today, right here, right now. Guess what we can have a say in? Tomorrow, how we'll live. Whether we will learn from the mistakes and the consequences that came with those sins that we committed. We have a choice. We can wallow in our sin. We can shake our fist at God. We can blame Him for the choices that we made that brought about the consequences that have happened to us. Or we can be like David and we can just simply wash ourselves off and stand up and go get dressed and go to the house of the Lord and worship, trusting that you know what? He is working all things out for good. I can't blame God for what I did. You can make the choice to sow to the Spirit today and tomorrow and the next day and reap eternal life. As the musicians come this morning, I want, I want to say this because I don't want this to be lost in this discussion. I've said it, but I want to be clear that God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace, listen to me, they are greater than all your sin. God's goodness, God's mercy, God's grace, they are greater than all of your sin. God can take your life and He can reweave all the things in your life, even the devastating consequences of your own sin, of our own stupidity at times. He can take them and weave back into it His perfect plan for your ultimate good and for His glory. While sin carries a great price tag, I thank God that the punishment for my sin has been paid for. That I would only have to deal with the consequence and discipline that He saved me for eternity. That He's going to take me, the mess that I am, and He's going to mold me and shape me and conform me into the image of Christ. And that one day, the one who justified me and is sanctifying me now will glorify me one day so that I look like His Son. It's a gift. I challenge you, bring your sin to Jesus and confess it and repent of it. Pray for the grace to face the consequences. Some of you today may be reaping a bitter harvest already. Why not come before the Lord? Why not submit to Him and let Him do what He wants to do in your life? If things aren't right between you and the Lord, I encourage you, come before Him and ask for His help. And He will help you avoid the horrible tragedy that sin wants to bring into your life. But if you don't have Christ, you don't have hope. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't have the power of God.
to serve Him and to love Him and to follow Him and to honor Him. All that you have awaiting you is condemnation. All that you have awaiting you is hell because the sin will continue and it will continue and it will continue and it will continue until Jesus Christ frees you. So if He's calling you today, answer His call. If He's opening your eyes to the reality of your sin, no, that's a gift from God. He, you could stay blinded. You could sit there like in a dark room, not even knowing how to find your way to eternity and to a relationship with God. You've heard today that Christ is offering eternal life to anyone who would come and confess like David did, I'm a sinner. Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? That He was buried and He rose again? Would you stake your eternity on that truth? That you don't have to earn it. Christ has already forgiven you and given you life because of his death. And would you surrender to Christ today? Lay down your life, your will, your way. Because when David came back that day to worship God, that's what he was doing. He was coming back and doing what he should have done before. And he was saying, God, here is my life. It is, it is broken. It is tragic. I am hurting. I am devastated. I feel lost. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. God, I don't. I just don't. I, I don't know. But you do. And you have the answers to life. And he simply took all those broken pieces... And he gave them to God and he worshiped. There's got to be someone in this room. Got to be in a crowd this size. Somebody that so desperately needs to confess their sin and turn from their sin and follow after God. The Bible says it very simply. If you want to have eternal life, you must repent and you must believe. And I offer you the chance to do that today to repent and believe. For those of you that are believers today, what is God trying to do in the midst of consequences? Some of you right now, you are in the thick of the heaviness of reaping what you've sown. Will it lead you back to Him? Will it humble you and change you? Or will you just sit back and say how unfortunate your life is and put the blame on somebody other than yourself? And how dare us when we put the blame on God? He is calling out today. Come home.